0: Galatians chapter six, Galatians chapter six, we will be finishing the book of Galatians today. This is our 14th sermon, 14th and final sermon in the book of Galatians. We're finishing the series, how to be a good Christian and other religious nonsense. The title of this message is obsession, obsession. We're going to look at, uh, Galatians 6, 11 through 18, the closing, we'll read it together now and then we'll pray and talk about it. I'm reading and teaching from the New Living Translation this morning, starting in verse 11 of Galatians 6. Paul writes and says, Notice what large letters I use as I write these closing words in my own handwriting. Those who are trying to force you to be circumcised want to look good to others. They don't want to be persecuted for teaching the cross of Christ alone can save. And even those who advocate circumcision don't keep the whole law themselves. They only want you to be circumcised so that they can boast about it and claim you as their disciples. As for me, may I never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that cross, my interest in this world has been crucified. And the world's interest in me has also died. And it doesn't matter whether we've been circumcised or not. What counts is whether we have been transformed into a new creation. May God's peace and mercy be upon all who live by this principle. They are the new people of God. From now on, don't let anyone trouble me with these things. For I bear on my body the scars that show I belong to Jesus. Dear brothers and sisters, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Be with your spirit. Amen. Lord, we just thank you for this wonderful book. It's been incredible as you have explained and exposed grace to us in a whole new way. For many of us, we're we're understanding the gospel for the first time, for all of us more than ever before. And we thank you for what that's doing in our lives, Lord. Thank you that that changes the way that we think and feel and think about you and feel toward you. It changes the way that we interact with others and feel about them. Thank you that the gospel is saturating our lives. And we ask that that work would continue. This work that you've done in these last 14 weeks, we ask that Holy Spirit, you would cause it to increase and to bear 30, 60, 100-fold fruit for the glory of Jesus Christ. And uh, today as we finish, Lord, we want to finish well. And so we open our hearts and our minds. We ask that you would teach and instruct us. We ask together that you please would anoint me to teach and preach in a way that is consistent with your word, consonant with your character and brings glory to your name and achieves your purposes in the world. Lord, it's the honor of my life to preach at this church. Thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Galatians has been, if you're familiar with the rest of the New Testament, perhaps Paul's most passionate letter to churches. Perhaps Paul's most passionate letter. And and the reason that is, is because there's a lot at stake. And so we've seen Paul use some harsh words. He's called the Galatians idiots, right? We've seen him say some harsh things. He said about his opponents, the false teachers, that Paul wished they would mutilate themselves. I mean, it's really a radically passionate letter and it is because of what is at stake and perhaps it would help us to understand what is at stake. If we thought about the two grand questions of life, the two questions that every human heart is wondering and those are these. How does God feel about me? How does God feel about me and what does God expect from me? Those are the two great questions of life that every man, woman, child wonders from time to time. How does God feel about me? And what does he expect from me? And the problem that arises in the book of Galatians is being addressed is that there were some false teachers in the churches in Galatia that were teaching the wrong answers to those very important life or death questions. They were saying, in effect, this. If you want God to be happy with you, then you need to be very careful to obey the rules. And in this context, the rules was the law of Moses, right? The Mosaic law and and beginning with and including circumcision. If you want God to be happy with you, you've got to very carefully obey the law of Moses. And that would begin with you Gentile Christians being circumcised. And if you do that, and if you continue to do that, you will be good Christians, If you don't do that, if you behave poorly, if you perform poorly, if you don't keep the rules, if you're not very careful about it, then you will be bad Christians. And your standing with God is in danger. You haven't performed well. God may be mad at you and he may not treat you well because you haven't done a good job at keeping the rules. That is what was being taught that Paul is addressing here. Now, we know better having studied the book of Galatians, but, but, but if we're to be honest, we would recognize that it, definitely before the book of Galatians, but perhaps even a bit now, we often function this way. It just seems to be our default. It seems to be intuitive. We think, well, I have been good, so God must be happy with me, so I expect him to bless me. Some of you are sitting here today feeling that way. Others of us feel, and perhaps more often, def- definitely me, I I haven't been good. God must be mad with me. I'm not at all expecting him to bless me. And that sort of thinking is wrong thinking. That is wrong thinking that is based on wrong theology. In fact, it's heresy. And that's why Paul has been so passionately arguing against it. That's why we've taken 14 weeks to discuss it. And what the book of Galatians has taught us is that nobody will ever be made right with God or stay right with God by keeping the rules. That simply isn't the way it works. Nobody will ever be made right with God or stay right with God by keeping the rules. Now, we've discussed the fact that be made right with God, the big theological phrase that we put on that is justified. And what does it mean to be justified? It means to be declared innocent, even though you're guilty, and to be treated excellent, even though you're unworthy. Nobody will ever be declared innocent in their own efforts to keep the rules, nor will they ever deserve to be treated excellent in their own efforts to keep the rules. That is what Paul has been arguing in the book of Galatians. And he's saying that we are only made right with God. We are only justified, declared innocent even though we're guilty, treated excellently even though we're unworthy through the cross of Jesus Christ and putting our faith in him so that we are freed from trying to relate to God initially and daily, initially and daily on the basis of our performance. We're free from that. And we're now allowed to relate to God on the basis of Christ's performance. We no longer relate to God according to our performance, good or bad. We relate to God according to Christ's performance on our behalf. And the disconnect for many Christians is that most of us would believe that for salvation, but not all of us believe that for daily living. And that needs to be believed for daily living. That is the way life is to be lived. That I relate to God according to what Christ did for me irrespective of what I have done well with or done poorly with. So, so hopefully, as we've walked through the book of Galatians, that, that failure to daily apply the gospel and the grace of God has been and is being remedied. And that you're, na- you're now able to answer those grand questions of life. How does God feel about me? And what does he expect from me in this way? God loves me more than I could ever possibly imagine. That's how he feels about me even though I'm more wicked than I dare to recognize. And he expects me to continually abide in and enjoy that love regardless of what I do. That's how God feels about you. His singular stance toward you in Christ is love. And what does he expect from you? He expects you to enjoy that love at all times. And then so we've been talking for these 14 weeks uh, about the implications of those truths, those gospel truths for our lives, right? How that works out in daily living. And Paul is passionate that we get this now at the end. That's why he writes in verse 11 and says, notice what large letters I use as I write these closing words in my own handwriting. Now, it was a practice of Paul In some of his letters, to write something at the end, some closing sentence or or sentences with his own hand. The rest of the letter he used an amanuensis for. A who, what is? An amanuensis, fancy word for secretary. I just like fancy words. He used a secretary. He would dictate his letters to a secretary and they, they would record it. But then at the end, Paul would take the pen and he would write with his own hand some closing things. And Second Thessalonians chapter 3, I think it's about verse 17, seems to indicate that Paul did this because there were imposters. There were some who were writing letters, authoritative letters, to the churches in Various regions claiming to be Paul, but it wasn't Paul at all. And so, so Paul let the churches know this is what my writing looks like. And it says in Second Thessalonians three seventeen, see how my writing looks here. This is my writing. So it's to authenticate this letter as being authoritative from the apostle Paul. But I want to draw your attention to, to what he says there. He says, "Notice what large letters I use." Well, why, why did he write big? Why, why, did he, why did he do that? Well, that would be the equivalent of using a, a highlighter today. What do we do when we want something not to be missed, right? You, you highlight it, or, or you put it in bold, or you italicize it, or you underline it. That's what Paul's doing with this last part of Scripture here, with this last part of the book. He's saying, I, I want this to be highlighted in your mind. I want this to be bold in your mind, italicized, underlined. I don't want you to miss what I'm writing here. So then he says in verse 12, "Those who are trying to force you to be circumcised want you to look good to others." So he's dealt with the arguments and the claims and the false teaching of those teachers. Now he's exposing their motives. And he says, "Those who want you to be circumcised and who want you to be obey want you to obey in order that you might be good Christians." They're doing this because they want to look good to others. He'll go on to say in the second half of verse 13, they only want you to be circumcised so that they could boast about it. They want to look good to others and they want to have something to brag about. Okay, here's what was going on in the heart of the false teachers, okay? Here's what was going on. And and sadly, we we ought to be sad about this it seems that they really did believe that they had to perform well in order to expect God to treat them well. It seemed that they really believed that idea, that their only hope for being daily accepted by God and treated well by God was if they continued to obey the rules very well. And so trying then to get others to be circumcised was an attempt on their part to perform well. They were doing what they thought was necessary to be good Christians. Here's what it looks like to be a good Christian. Be circumcised and obey the law of Moses. Now let me show you guys how to be good Christians. And if we make more good Christians, then we're really good Christians. So it was an attempt to perform well. Here's the catch. Okay, Here's the catch with that framework that they had, that understanding. That if I perform well, God's gonna treat me well. Here's the catch you cannot perform well. That is the catch. Perhaps you can according to your own perverted standard. Maybe you can according to someone else's twisted standards. But according to God's standard, you can't do good. You cannot perform well. Paul draws this out in verse 13. When he says, even those who advocate circumcision don't keep the whole law themselves. They're talking about this performance thing, but they themselves are not doing well. Remember, the horror of trying to relate to God by how well you keep the rules is that those rules always and only show you to be bad. That's the horror of that. You're thinking, I, 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 I need to earn favor with God. I need to ingratiate God toward me. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do good with the rules. And, and what the rules do is they show you to be bad. And we, we should get this deeply, that that's what the law does. That that's what, what the rules do. And if you don't get that, then you have never tried in earnest to obey the rules. If you have not discovered in your effort to be good, that you end up realizing that you're more bad than you first realized, then you have not endeavored in earnest to be good. There may be a few things that you've got nailed, like, I don't know, whatever. You don't get drunk or you don't beat up blind people or whatever it is. There may be a few things that like you're doing good with, but that that doesn't make you good. God's law only and always shows us to be bad. So then when we get this, that despite all of our best efforts to pay careful attention to the rules and obey them, we're finding ourselves to be worse and worse. If that then doesn't drive us to the cross, which is what it's supposed to do. If we don't let us, if we don't let that drive us to Jesus and highlight our intense need for forgiveness. If we don't do that with the realization that we're worse than we first thought. Then what will happen is we become, as these false teachers were, they were becoming insecure about their standing before God. I'm, I'm not doing as well as I thought I was. I, I think maybe God is upset with me. You become insecure about your standing before God and then what you do is you turn toward your standing before people to develop a sense of well-being unsure about your standing before God. And so you, you look now horizontally to people to try to develop a sense of well-being. The false teachers would be saying, if I can show myself to be doing well in front of and in comparison to others, then I will feel well about myself. After all, I'll prove myself to be better than they are. That was a mindset of these false teachers and Paul then exposes their motives. They wanted to look good and have something to boast about in front of others because certainly their standing before God was tenuous. Failing to ground their identity, security and self-perception in the gospel, they had fallen into the never-ending relationship-destroying Christ-dishonoring trap of needing to look good in front of people and needing to have something to boast about. And and a function of their failure to realize God's total acceptance of us and approval of us in and through Christ and what he's done on our behalf caused them to need, to need the approval and the acceptance of people. So that verse 12, the second half, Paul said, they they don't want to be persecuted. That's a real issue here. They they don't want to be persecuted for teaching that the cross of Christ alone can save. You see, a non-gospel oriented perspective does several things, but we'll highlight two for our purposes right now. A non-gospel oriented perspective does these two things. It seeks to show itself better than others and simultaneously to please and placate others. Now, that's a difficult position to maintain because those two are kind of intention, right? A in non-gospel oriented perspective one wants to show itself to be better than others and also please others at the same time. And it's hard to beat them and please them. But, but this is what a failure to recognize the gospel causes us to want to do. And, and the false teachers were doing both of these. They didn't want to be persecuted. Why? Because they had an intense need to be liked. An intense desire to be accepted. And teaching that the cross of Christ alone can save doesn't always do that for us. Because in teaching that, what do we also have to teach? In communicating the gospel, we on the front end always have to communicate that you are more wicked than you could ever possibly imagine. And that is an affront to the pride of men, women, and even children. Because men, women, and children want to assume themselves to be generally good. Haven't you ever heard that as you're, you're sharing the stuff about Jesus and the, and the gospel? People say, well, I'm generally a good person. Th- people want to see themselves as generally good. At least in comparison to others, I'm, I'm doing all right. But the gospel says you are thoroughly wicked. And, and that's not Popular. That doesn't win us see approval of people or, or, or cause people to like us. That's why Christianity is discriminated against like no other religion. Yeah. Yeah. Go into the workplace or school and you could talk about Buddha oh, yeah. all that you want. Yeah, you, you can talk about Allah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You, you can talk about crystals and Chumash Indians and burning sage. and you, you can talk about anything you want to talk about, but you bring up Jesus and being the only unique savior of the world and whoa, 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 whoa. Whoa, 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 church and state, dude, church and state. You can't, you can't do that here. Right? Talk about any other religion you want in any way that you want, but you bring up the unique identity and work of Jesus and you're in trouble. Why? Because people want to see themselves as good and the gospel says they're bad. And these false teachers... They didn't want to draw that sort of fire. Failing to ground their need for acceptance in what Christ had done for them on the cross, they now had a deep need for the acceptance of people. So they didn't want to offend. They didn't want to draw fire, opposition, persecution. They needed to be liked. They needed to be accepted. But of course, they they wanted others to be circumcised as they were and then they actually persecuted those who were not because they also needed them to show themselves as being better because a non-gospel-oriented perspective causes us to try to show ourselves as better and please people. They needed to be liked but they wanted to show that those who were uncircumcised weren't as good as they were. And they wanted something to boast about. They, they wanted to send missionary letters back to Jerusalem, monthly reports saying, look, a hundred circumcisions this month in the churches in Galatia. Praise the Lord. They wanted something to boast about. Now, in juxtaposition to this perspective that has failed to realize the gospel and so feels compelled to perform well and better in front of others so that there might be a reason to boast we have the life perspective of Paul representing the right perspective for Christians. Verse 14, Paul says, As for me, may I never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. May I never boast about anything except for what Jesus did for me. You see, Paul was captivated, charmed, and entranced by what Christ had done for him on the cross rather than what he could do to impress others. He was enthralled with what had been done for him rather than what he might be able to do in front of other people. And so he he refused to boast about anything other than the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, that word boast is interesting. Let's drill down on that a little bit. There's not a perfect translation for it, from from the Greek to English, uh, the King James. Those of you who are old and remember your King James days, right? The King James, the old King James, uh, uses the word glory there. It says, "God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ." So, boast, glory, not quite getting at the idea in Greek. Theologian and pastor John Stott helps us to understand it. He says this about this word. He said. It means to boast in, glory in, trust in, rejoice in, revel in, live for. The object of our boast or glory fills our horizons, engrosses our attention, and absorbs our time and energy. In a word, our glory is our obsession. Paul is saying, I'm not going to be obsessing about. I'm not going to be engrossed by. I'm not going to fill my horizon with. I'm not going to rejoice and revel and live for anything other than the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross of Jesus Christ was Paul's obsession. And he refused to obsess about or live for anything other than that truth. He certainly wasn't going to obsess about what people thought about him and he wasn't going to live for the approval of others. He would only glory in, obsess about the cross because in the cross, he knew that he had the approval of God. And so he knew that God thought about him and treated him only through the lens of what Christ had done for him. He knew that he had been justified, declared innocent even though he was guilty, that he was to be treated excellent by God even though he was unworthy. So he realized that then to obsess about performance could never add to that or take from that. So why obsess about that? And also to obsess about people's opinions just didn't make sense in light of the fact that the God of the universe was pleased with him. So he refused to do it. In fact, look what he says in the second part of verse 14. He says, my interest in this world has been crucified, and the world's interest in me has also died. My interest in this world has been crucified. It's dead. And the world's interest in me is also dead. You see, when we begin to understand the gospel, we see ourselves as dead to the world and and it to us. But in this way, in this way, again, John Stott helps us. He says, quote, Previously, we were desperately anxious to be in favor with the world. But now that we have seen ourselves as sinners and Christ crucified as our sin bearer, we do not care what the world thinks or says of us or does to us. The world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What an incredible freedom. Do you hear the freedom in that? The world has been crucified to me. I don't care what it says about me, thinks about me or does to me anymore. My obsession is Christ and what he did for me on the cross. What what freedom that came to Paul's life. That is why Paul is able to say in verse 16, may God's peace and mercy be upon all who live by this principle. May God's peace and mercy be upon all those who live by this principle. This principle being justification by grace through faith alone. Grace and peace. Excuse me, he says there, the peace and mercy of God. Because God's peace and mercy is what, Everyone on earth wants peace and mercy. And what the Galatians, what the book of Galatians has been teaching us is that we will never ever find God's peace or God's mercy through our own self-effort. They don't come that way. They just don't come that way. They are only found in the work of Christ on the cross for us and the work of the spirit in us, the work of the cross by which we are saved and the work of the spirit by which we are changed. Verse 15 then says this, it doesn't matter whether we've been circumcised or not. What counts is whether we have been transformed into a new creation. So, so the, these external observances that they were putting so much weight in circumcision, it doesn't matter if you've been circumcised or not. Okay, the, 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 the external observances are not the issue. Baptism would, would be a modern equivalent. It's not the issue. The issue is what Christ did on the cross and the spirit of God subsequently in us. You see, we, we have to ask this question. Is Christianity primarily a religion about what you do? Is Christianity primarily about what you do? Is it about action? Is it about morals? Is it about behavior? The non-believing world expects it to be. This creates tension because they look at you and say, you don't live like a Christian. Christians should act better, behave better, be better. You see, in the world's mind, Christianity is primarily a religion about what you do. But that's, that's not Christianity. Yes, we're, we're to be salt and light. We're to let our good deeds shine before men in such a way that they see them and, and give glory to our Father in heaven. We're to live excellently before the Gentiles, so on and so forth. But Christianity is primarily not about what you do. It is primarily about what has been done for you. It is about the action that God took on our behalf. That is the action of Christianity, the action of Christ on the cross on our behalf and now the spirit of God in us changing us. It's not about externals. It's about an internal reality of the spirit of God in us transforming us. That was Paul's obsession justification in the cross, sanctification in the spirit. That was Paul's obsession. That is what he lived for. That is what engrossed his attention. That is what he reveled in. And that is what he was willing to give his life for. Look what he says in verse 17. From now on, don't let anyone trouble me with these things. For I bear on my body the scars that show I belong to Jesus. Jesus. You see, this this inward work of God in us by grace, what Christ did for us on the cross, the spirit making us brand new, it does always have, it will always have outward implications. This inward work that God does in us by grace will always have outward implications. That's why Paul says, "For, for I bear on my body the scars that show I belong to Christ. He's referring to the fact that he had been persecuted for teaching that you can only be saved through the cross. I'll read to you an account from 2 Corinthians 11. I'll just read it to you. Paul here comparing himself to some false teachers and then talking about his ministry. says, I've worked harder, been put in prison more often been whipped times without number and faced death again and again. Five times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. That means they threw rocks at him, not that he smoked something. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. I've traveled on many long journeys. I faced danger from rivers, dangers from robbers. I faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I faced danger in the cities, in the, desert, in the deserts, and on the seas. And I faced danger from men who claim to be believers, but are not. I've worked hard and long, endured many sleepless nights. I've been hungry and thirsty and often gone without food. I've shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Then besides all this, I have the daily burden of my concern for all the churches. You need to know this. Paul had scars on his body that showed that he belonged to Jesus, but he did not endure any of those things because he had to. He didn't experience any of those things believing that it would bring him merit before God or ingratiate God toward him. He did not do any of those things because he had to. Rather, he was willing to undergo all of those things because he was obsessed. Paul had a beautiful obsession with what had been done for him at the cross and given to him in the spirit. And that's, that's important because what, what obsessions do is they drive us. You, you see, an obsession becomes the controlling factor in your life, the, the controlling factor. When Paul says here that he has scars to show that he belongs to Jesus, he, he was referring to an ancient practice in that Greek culture whereby slave owners would brand, tss, brand their slaves so that if one ever got away and they got caught, they they would be able to prove that that slave belonged to them. Paul here is referring to that, and he's saying, listen, I've been branded for Jesus, and Christ's ownership over my heart, soul, mind, and affections is evident. I bear the scars on my body. Christ's ownership over my life My obsession with him is evident because the inward work that he does in us is always going to be outwardly obvious to those who are looking. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, who owns your heart, soul, and affections? Who or what are you a slave to? What are you obsessed about? When people look at your life, what is it marked by? When they looked at Paul, he had the marks on his body. Three times, 39 lashes. Five times with rods. Beaten to death with stones. His life was marked. When people look at our lives, what are we marked by? What is our obsession? And and this question is everything, again, because your obsession is that which drives you. You, your obsession is a controlling factor in your life, and therein you discover your God. You, you may say, My God is the God of the Bible, the God of Israel. But if, if you can identify your obsession, that is your functional God. Because your obsession is a controlling factor. In your life, it's your functional God. You see, whatever is forming the way that you think, process, feel, and so behave, that's your functional God. The Bible would call that an idol. Paul said, I'm not going to obsess about anything other than what Christ has done for me. What is your obsession? What at this moment in your life is most forming? Your thought processes and the way you feel and therefore your actions. That is your functional God. And and, and what what Paul is saying is that for him, the cross and the gospel were the controlling factors of his life. And and what, what these did for him was they freed him from the false, cruel gods that often hold us in slavery. Paul was freed from the false and cruel God of the approval of people. You see, some of you, that's, that's your functional God. You, you, you so need the approval of people. You, you're so concerned about pleasing people that, that it shapes the way that you feel about yourself, the way that you think and process, and therefore what you do. That, that, that's your, that, that obsession is your functional God, the, the need for the approval of people. Paul, Paul says, I'm free from that now. I, I used to, I'm free from that. I used to be there. I'm, I'm free. I'm only going to obsess about being gross by, give all my attention to, live for the gospel. And so he was freed also from the false and cruel God of the need to be better. Some of you, that, that's your obsession. That's what drives you. I need to be better than my sister was. I need to be better than my parents expected. I, I need to be better than my coworkers. I need to move up the ladder. I need to be in first place. That's your obsession. That's, that's a controlling factor of your life. That's what mostly determines how you think and act. It's your functional God. Paul says, I'm, I'm free from that. Paul was free from the cruel God of our present pain. The cruel. God of our present pain. You see some of you are so caught in your present pain that is your obsession that is what you think about most, what most forms the way that you feel and so shapes the majority of your behavior and your functional God is your pain and Paul says the cross set me free. Paul says I'm not going to be ruled by my woundedness. The only wounds I will obsess about are the wounds of my Savior on the cross. And he was set free from the cruel God of the failures of the past. You know, some of us, our past are so horrific that that's driving and shaping us. And what Paul says is, because of what Christ did for us, we can be free from the failures of the past, the pain of the present, the need to be better, and the desire for the approval of people. And for once, because of the gospel, we can live as free people. I won't obsess about anything other than what Christ did for me, so that he's able to say from a place of experience, verse 18. Dear brothers and sisters, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Lord, we pray that prayer over ourselves even now. That your grace would be with us. That Jesus, you would be our sole obsession. Lord, we, we repent of other obsessions, lesser obsessions that are ruling us, that we're enslaved to. And we, we, we want to be slaves to Christ. We want to be ruled by you. We want to be captivated and charmed and entranced with you and nothing else. And so spirit come. And once again, in this day, in this moment, and in these days, show and prove to our hearts and minds the beauty and the worth of Christ and what he did for us in such a way that we wouldn't long anything Long for anything more than that. need you to do that work in us, Lord, because we're weak, frail, silly people. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who's given to us, who guides us, gives us new desires, directs us, gives us new life. Do that in us, Holy Spirit. If you need any help today, prayer team is up here on my right and my left. Communion is here to come and obsess about the cross and the carpets are here as well.